Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters and joining me today are my colleagues at Investors Chronicle, Deputy Personal Finance Editor Kate Bailey and Personal Finance Writer Emma Ajimang. Also on the podcast today is special guest Paul Devian, Investment Director at Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management. Emerging markets have had a tough few years, but year-to-date in 2016 have enjoyed a steady upward trajectory, rising more than 30%. But as always, the important issue for investors is not past performance, but where things will go from here. So Kate has been assessing the prospects for these markets. Kate, what's been driving emerging markets this year? Um, well, it's quite a few things, actually. It's kind of a load of factors converging at once um, to yeah, to fuel quite a major rally. I mean, the main thing is all around interest rates and yield and the fact that rates um, are so low everywhere in the developed world. And we've got negative yields in some places. And so emerging markets are one of the only places that you can get a kind of reasonable yield. So that's pushing a lot of investors back out there. But there are also other things going on. Um, there's been a lot of political change across Latin America, which has driven some people to back to those regions, thinking that maybe we'll get a kind of you know regime shift um, in places like Argentina and Brazil. Um, US interest rates have not been rising as fast as people maybe anticipated, and that's good for emerging markets. And there have also been some structural changes. So a lot of these markets have lower debt piles now, which is also a good thing in terms of um, if rates do rise, because any any country holding dollar-denominated debt, obviously a higher US interest rates are bad for them. Um, and then other things, commodity prices stabilising. Um, so it's it's kind of a big mix of factors that have all come together at once to, to kind of fuel a rally in emerging markets this year. OK, but the key question now is, can this rally continue? Well, it's a tricky one because obviously they have they have risen by quite a lot, but they haven't risen by nearly as much as, for example, in 2013, just before we had the taper tantrum, when rates did rise and money flooded out of emerging markets and we had this big crisis. We're not quite at that point yet in terms of valuations or how invested they are. So on that front, you know, it's not looking too frothy. Um, evaluations still look kind of reasonable. And you have got in many regions, because I think that the key here is to say that the rally, you know, has has kind of affected every country, but you, we need to think about emerging markets as different countries. So you've got regions like India, where people still are very positive in terms of the political change that's happening there. Um, Modi has just brought in this big kind of tax, um, new tax legislation, which is having a big impact on business. But then you've got countries like China. Now, obviously, it's a massive part of emerging markets, but many people are worried about its growing debt pile. Um, countries like Russia, which is very tied to the oil price. So I think on many fronts, the rally you know, could continue. We will have lower rates for longer. Uh, US isn't going to raise rates very quickly, even if it does so. Um, but maybe you need to be selective because you know, if it doesn't continue in quite the hyped way that has been going on, then there will be countries that, that are kind of affected badly. Okay. But perhaps um, even more pertinent is the long-term prospects, because ultimately, if you invest in emerging markets, you should only do it if you have a very long-term time horizon due to the risk of this area. So what is the long-term picture? What are the fundamentals looking like? Uh, well, they're looking quite good on a valuation basis. These markets aren't too expensive. And on the long term view, the, the big argument for emerging markets is demographics, I guess, you just have a really good balance of working age population, and some young companies, 
you know, creating quite a dynamic kind of picture, I guess, for growth. So long term, the growth does does look more appealing than, I guess, in many developed markets, but it is obviously high risk. Okay. Paul, what's your view in emerging markets at the moment? And do you think it's a good time to allocate to them? Uh, I suppose it's, um, I'm going to agree uh, quite a lot with uh, everything that Kate's just said. I mean, for us, the rally has perhaps been a little bit too significant. Um, We are at benchmark waiting with emerging markets, but very specifically, and just picking up on something she said there before, um, we've only allocated to India. Um, The reforms process, uh, I think, is is going to be very, very positive for the region. Um, We've tended to steer away from any other parts of of the, the more general emerging markets. Um, and have just sort of felt that uh, you know an, an allocation to to India is is exactly where the money should be at this moment in time. The reforms are very very positive. Um, we wouldn't look to uh, to increase um, above our benchmark weighting at this moment because we're still pretty nervous on the uh, the general global economy. Okay, and um, how do you get your exposure to India? Um, so, so there's a couple of funds that we generally will use. Um, the preference actually is for First Day India's fund. Um, so most of our portfolios you'll find uh, are holding to, to that in, in there. Um, it's also worth noting that First Day Asian Leaders Fund also has a fairly significant exposure to uh, to India as well. Um, and it plays the broader Asian market. Is that the um, Stuart Investors Asia Pacific Leaders Fund? It is now, yeah. indeed. Okay. Um, I mean, roughly how much does it have in India? Well, it can be variable. Um, there has been points where it's had sort of around about 20%. So, and it depends on which uh, which fund that you're actually looking at. Okay, Kate, you've obviously been looking at uh, broader emerging markets. So, what funds are good options for broader emerging markets exposure at the moment? Um, yeah, well, what I've done is had a look at or kind of divided it into maybe punchier funds to go with if you've got a kind of mm. higher growth. Um, you're looking for quite high yield or you have a very positive outlook on emerging markets and then some more defensive ones because actually there's a big difference um, in terms of views managers take. Let's start with the optimists. Okay, let's start with the Um, So we've got people like Templeton Emerging Markets Investment Trust. It's quite an interesting one. It's always had kind of a value tilt um, but has a new manager now. It used to be run by Mark Mobius and now it's Carlos Hardenberg. Um, Now he has kind of broadened out the portfolio since he took over and he's quite interested in themes like technological disruption, things like genetics. So you've got some stocks like Indian generic company Dr. Reddy's Laboratories, but then you've also got larger stocks like Chinese internet company Tencent. Um, so it's kind of a mix of some really high growth, quite exciting themes, I guess, and some larger ones. Um, and then you've got things like JP Morgan, Global Emerging Markets Income, obviously tilted more towards the higher yield stocks. Um, and then so that has a very high weighting towards financials. Now, things like Chinese financials, some managers would say, I, you know, I don't want to touch that with a barge pole. But it's, it is areas like Chinese financials and things like Brazil, which really divides managers, which have really rallied. But those are maybe also the higher risk, you know, elements of the of the region, I guess. Okay, now, so um, turning to the pessimists, or let's say people are maybe a bit more cautious, but still want a bit of emerging markets in the portfolio, what what could they consider? Um, So something like JP Morgan Global Emerging Markets Investment Trust, um, that has a real quality bias. It's managed by Austin Forey. 
And so he's looking for stocks which are just going to outperform over the very long term. So, you know, companies which will be able to keep kind of ticking over, um, generating revenue, regardless of what happens in the in the wider environment. So these tend to be kind of more stable, larger stocks. He would hold stakes in, in things like Baidu, Tencent, those Chinese internet companies. And another one would be Fidelity Emerging Markets, also quite a kind of defensive outlook. Um, Nick Price, he's looking for quality companies that, you know, that deliver regardless of market cycle again. Um, he's actually most heavily invested in financial services and consumer defensive and consumer cyclical stocks. Um, so it's it's quite interesting on that because it does take punchy positions. It's quite concentrated. But he also has this bias towards quality and defensive names. OK, thanks, Paul and Kate. Some interesting suggestions. This week's Portfolio Clinic features an investor who wants to build up his portfolio to support his retirement funds and, in particular, improve the income it generates. Now, this reader's portfolio is mainly comprised of a small number of direct equities and one of these, GlaxoSmithKline, accounts for nearly a third of the entire portfolio. Paul, you're one of the experts who reviewed the portfolio. So, first of all, what are the risks of having such a concentrated portfolio? From our point of view, there are two main risks. It's the risk to the capital um, and the risk to the income that the client certainly needs. If you look at the, the overall portfolio, over half of the assets are invested in two companies. So theoretically, if something should go wrong with either of them, it's going to make a significant dent in both the asset value of the portfolio and its income stream. Whilst this may look unlikely for Unilever and Glaxo, which are the, uh, the two companies in question, there's plenty of examples from histories that should keep investors' minds at check. You, know, you don't have to go too far back to look at Marconi, you know, even Royal Bank of Scotland. As, or as BP, even. Mm. Or even BP, yes. Um, so you know, the issue that, that we've got is that if suddenly something was to happen to one of those companies, you know, there's two impacts straight away. And then obviously the capital value will diminish, the overall income level will diminish, and then if the client has a requirement, which in this case there's an objective for, for a level of income, then to actually use that capital to go elsewhere to find income, will the purchasing power is diminished as well. So you know, there is a clear objective. The client is looking to provide supplementary income. You know, if this really should be done in a much more risk-averse manner. Um, otherwise, there'll be times when that portfolio can't meet its objectives. Okay. Now, when you're constructing a portfolio of direct equity holdings, roughly, what's the absolute maximum you should have in any one share? Um, being a, a typical broker, I'm going to give you a, a sort of range of answers. I mean, as a firm, we have a, a much harder rule. We will tend to look at 4% in portfolios. Mm. Um, but having said that, we don't generally run 100% equity portfolios, apart from for a handful of clients. Um, so if you actually took that, you know, what we would call a natural spread of equities being 15 to 20 then if you took a 100% equity portfolio, then that would take you up to around about 6 6.5%. So you know, whilst in portfolio terms, we wouldn't necessarily do it. If it was a client who was looking at a 100% equity portfolio, those are the sorts of levels that I would go up to know more than. Um, but obviously, if you're spreading a portfolio on day one at 6%, portfolios aren't all going to go up and down together. So you know, just keep a close eye. If anything starts drifting to be a little bit higher than that, you know, be disciplined, take some profits, you know, reallocate that fund into to others that within the portfolio that you still like, but actually are at lower percentages. Okay. Now, um, some of our readers um, construct their portfolio from funds rather than shares. So if you've made up your portfolio of funds, which obviously have a, a lot of underlying holdings, roughly how much of a portfolio should each fund account for? Um, well, again, it's, 
it's sort of twofold. So us as a firm, we're looking at um, a good selection of geographical regions and asset classes, um, and we will tend to have fund portfolios with around about 10 to 15 individual funds, and we have a, a reasonably hard cap at around 10% allocations. Um, but having said that, you know you can over diversify. You could have clients having you know, 10 to 15 different funds in one particular region, and therefore you you, know, you might as well have a tracker, which would be a more cost-effective way of doing it. So. If a client came to me and said, could you review a portfolio and I've only got five funds in it, you know, where you've got sort of 20, maybe 25% allocations, as long as that portfolio is properly diversified, you've got a nice spread of asset classes, a nice spread of geographical regions, then you know, I'd be very, very comfortable even at that sort of level. Okay, that's really useful. Thanks for that. Now, turning back to the reader that we featured in the portfolio, um, he says he really likes blue chip equities, but you know he's an income investor. So at the moment, what the downside of UK blue chip equities for people seeking income? Um, it's generally not that much of, of an issue. There's, there's obviously risks. Mm. Um, but if you have a good spread of blue chip equities, then you know, I suppose the issue that a lot of clients have is that they have this buy and hold strategy. So they'll tend to buy some investments because they think they're good quality businesses. They've provided dividend growth for a number of years and they can almost forget about them. Well, if your investment horizon is long, long term, that's absolutely fine. But you know you should still be keeping an eye on these things. But if you can suffer the fluctuations in uh, in capital values and you're just looking at the income, then generally you're going to be on the right side of it. You know, it's important to be diversified, of course. Um, but what we tend to find is that people don't keep a close eye on them. They don't look at things such as dividend cover, which is the ability of that company to pay its dividend. You know, and they don't often keep too close an eye on how financially sound these businesses are, thinking you know they can just be good buy and hold strategy investing. So, um, so on the basis of, of that, you can, as long as you've got a good spread, you know, you've got good diversification across the equities, you keep a monitor of you know, how those companies are doing, keep a close eye on that dividend cover, um, and if you know if companies are getting towards the lower end, so they're only capable of paying their dividends or even paying out reserves because they're not covered, then perhaps it's time to be a little bit more active in those portfolios. Take some, take the capital out, look at something that's a bit more defensive. So it's just really a case of there's not too too many risks if you're diversified, but just keep an eye on those dividends. Do you not think there's um, a big risk um, to UK equity income shares at the moment from? Um dividend cuts because we've heard a lot about that yeah funny enough if, you, if you'd asked me this before christmas last year i would have told you this was going to be the year of dividend cuts so it's um you know there is it's certainly a risk you know you've seen base rates artificially low for for endless years um with no obvious signs of, of that changing so in many respects there isn't such a requirement for a lot of companies to pay the high dividends that we have but what we're seeing um we looked at you know companies such as BHP and Rio Tinto and those having uh, having dividend cuts earlier in the year, there was a real feeling that that would filter through to maybe oil and gas, you know, possibly into pharmaceuticals, possibly even into utilities. So there is a risk that those dividends could come lower. Um, so, But the problem is, is where else would you go at this moment in time to get a high yield? You know, yes, you can keep a balance with having other asset classes in there, but the overall yields aren't a great deal higher. So you know, it is a risk. You have to be aware of it. But I think companies seem to be you know, quite, uh, quite focused on maintaining the level of dividend at least rather than uh, necessarily growing it at the moment. So, yes, there is a risk, but I think it's a lot less than it was perhaps 12 months ago. OK. Um, you mentioned uh, it was obviously ha- hard to find a yield. So for people seeking retirement income, what would you say are the, in some of the main or some of the best options at the moment? 
Uh, again, it depends on how people like to construct their portfolios because you know, within the UK equity space, um, I'm going to say something and then clarify it with uh, a, a sort of a, a reason why I might not do it just at this moment in time. But something like Lloyd's, you've got some decent dividend growth already penciled in for the coming years. Um, obviously, the issues at this moment is what's going on in Germany and how that's going to affect the broader region. But you, you know, there are some, some businesses which seem to have some decent value in capital terms, but also have some strong dividend growth priced in. Um, utilities have become rather expensive. You know, Post-referendum, there was a bit of a spike, uh, and they look quite pricey at this moment, and therefore the dividends aren't quite so high. And you know, with the debt levels on their balance sheets, you know, those dividends aren't perfectly secure either. So it is a tough one. So what we would tend to suggest to clients is you know, look at, at equity income. Um, for those that have got plenty of capital and you can spread it around some direct equities, that's fine. But we'd often guide investors towards some more generalist income funds. Um, Neil Woodford has obviously got a very good track record in the UK. I'm struggling a little bit in capital terms at this moment in time, but you know, looking at those income levels, I think that's fairly secure. So a CF um, Woodford equity income fund. That's the one, yep. yeah. Um, and also looking at some global equity income funds. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, there is that sort of question mark over the currency levels at the moment, and is sterling going to remain weak forever? Um, our feeling is perhaps it will be weak for a little longer, but that might stabilise a little bit. But either way, looking at global uh, equity income, I think, is a nice balance to some of the UK equity income that we've got. And you can get some higher yields from, from those as well. Um, there's a, an Artemis Global Equity Income Fund that we often use here as well. So that might be worth considering. And then around that, I would, you know, wouldn't try and stick just in, in the equity income uh, area. You know, I would look to try and complement it with some some fixed income where possible. I know that yields are very, very low at this moment. There are a couple of bonds around that can be bought with yields at around three and a half to four, which may not be all that attractive. There's some bond funds around that have similar sorts of levels um, and you know, are giving a good spread of, of diversification, so therefore not excessive amounts of risk. Um, and I'd also try and complement both those asset classes with something that has a lower correlation to both. So something ideally that has a limited correlation to fixed income and a limited correlation to equities. Uh, so an infrastructure has been a vogue sector of, of the market for a, a few years now. A lot of the infrastructure funds, you know, people like Hickel, uh, INPP, um, to, to name a couple, you know, they're sitting on quite significant premiums to their net asset value. So you know, I struggle to want to go and buy any of those at the moment. But even in some of the green energy investments, mm-hmm. such as renewables, you can pick up yields of around about 6%. They're trading very, very close to their net asset values. So it's a nice way of having some attractive income, lower correlation to the other asset classes, and also within them, some sort of built-in link to inflation. Because you know, with looking at renewables uh, specifically, you know, they are selling energy back to the grid and obviously selling energy broadly. So, well, which you know, of the um, infrastructure clean energy investment trusts do you like at the moment? Uh, the one that I would tend to, to look at is known as TRIG, or the Renewables Infrastructure Group. Yep. Uh, they're currently just undergoing a, a tap issue at this moment in time, so they're raising a little bit more money in the market, um, and they're priced pretty close to uh, their launch value of a pound, um, which gives them a yield of about 6%. Uh, the energy that they are producing, you obviously get the, the credits that come back from the government, which have an inflation link to them, and the assumption, obviously, that prices will rise in the future, and therefore fuel prices and energy prices will, will rise as well. It gives a little bit of a guarantee against inflation to that income stream. So it sort of gives it a little bit less of a, a correlation to equities and, uh, and fixed income. Okay, thank you, Paul. That's some, some really helpful suggestions.
Now, when investors buy a fund, they usually hope it will deliver them some outperformance. But over recent years, sales of passive tracker funds, which aim to deliver the returns of an index, have experienced strong growth. Emma, you've been looking at this. So why are investors turning to passive funds? There's a couple of main reasons, Leonora. I mean, the main thing is is cost. Um, investors are becoming more aware of the impact that the cost of funds will have on the, on their returns. And the passive industry, you know, has been massively driving down the costs of um, index trackers. So this is an area that, you know, sort of investors concerned about costs have been piling into. Um, and also, you know, people are generally questioning the value added by active managers more. So some of the analysts we spoke to said that that's also a factor for why people are choosing um, index trackers. Okay. Now, should our listeners follow this trend and at this time increase their allocation to passive funds? Um, well, it depends where exactly they, they're planning to um, invest. So um, the UK arguably is, is probably, you know, maybe not the best market to consider um, investing in a tracker fund at the minute. And there's a few reasons for that. Um, first of all, I mean, the analysts we spoke to found that 74% of actively managed funds um, have beaten the FTSE All Share Index in the last five years. And the reason for that is because um, mid-cap stocks have been one of the main drivers for growth and index trackers are, are less exposed to that compared to active fund managers or have been. And so that's, you know, over the past, it hasn't been a particularly good area to be investing in. And there's also concerns about the future because um, since the Brexit vote, UK market, stock market has sort of bounced and some of the people we spoke to felt that actually it's looking a bit expensive now. And if you are going to be buying a market tracker, this could be the wrong time because there's a possibility of increased volatility along the horizon. So arguably maybe not the best time to, to, be, to get exposure to the UK through an index tracker. Are there any areas where you could consider um, a passive fund? Yes, everyone we spoke to was, was quite enthusiastic about trackers in the US um, stock market. And that's because it's considered to be a highly efficient market. Namely, um, all investors have access to the same amount of information um, that's available on, on stocks. And it's very, this means that it's very hard for active fund managers to beat the index. And actually, research has shown that something like you know 90% of them um, are, are beaten by the index. So the people we spoke to, you know, were quite enthusiastic about trackers um, when you're looking at exposure in the US market. Okay. Um, Paul, what's your view of passive funds? Uh, we like them a lot. Uh, I think they're a very important part of our portfolio construction. Um, there's obviously you know, some rather unusual asset classes that you can pick up via passives that um, you wouldn't necessarily be able to pick up as through a fund. Uh, and the, the, one of the biggest reasons for, for having them in, in certain parts of our, our blends in, in certain geographical regions is that if you're trying to trade in a particular market, if you're buying a fund, it's a daily dealing. You probably will put an order through. The chances are it won't price or deal until the following day. But if there's some news that's out, you can be nimble. You can be very active. You can allocate to, to that sector immediately or obviously vice versa. If there's some bad news out, you can get out very, very quickly. Is this ETFs um, you've got in mind here? Um, generally ETFs. So that would be rather than a fund that is just something like you know, Vanguard, for example. Yeah, yeah, because we were talking about very, very passive funds of an ETFs a, a second ago. Yeah, and, and I suppose so. It, we would tend to look at it more from from that side. Mm. Um, so, as, as, 
of taking the ETFs as a, as a general rule, as a, a sort of passive allocator. So if you're looking at something that's tracking a particular index, um, and then you will get the cheapest alternative will be through an ETF. Yeah. What, what markets and areas do you particularly like to use passive funds or ETFs in? Um, I suppose some of it can be thematic uh, and in very simplistic terms, you know, post-referendum, there was an opportunity to play a currency trade you know, in the UK. So if you're looking at the UK market, you know, just allocating in a passive way to the, the FTSE 100 felt for us to be somewhere where you're going to get quite a big pickup as, as sterling weakened and, and prices revalued. Um, there's also some areas where you look at individual fund managers and you think, well, actually, you know, we're looking at some of the statistics before, you know, you, you, they're just not delivering in performance terms. So there's often a case, particularly in the US, to uh, to look at some of the passives that are in there just because they will deliver you know, fairly steady performance and you can do it at a much lower cost as, as well. And then sometimes you've got certain areas where we as an investment house will want to have a particular theme and you look around at the, the individual funds and the funds that are out there that just don't give you an option. So, f- for example, we've looked at aerospace and defence um, and how those sectors are actually spread within some of the funds is far away from the actual theme that we were wanting to play. And you can look at some of the, the passive ETFs, which will just play a sector, um, and that will fit very nicely with some of the thematic approaches we have in portfolios. OK, thanks, Paul. Some really useful points there. That brings us to the end of this week's podcast, so it just remains to thank Kate Bealey and Emma Adjumang, Deputy Personal Finance Editor and Personal Finance Writer at Investors Chronicle, and Paul Darian, Investment Director at Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management. You can read more on the best funds for emerging markets, generating a retirement income, and when to use tracker funds in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle on the website. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend.